Father, again, thank you for a, an amazingly beautiful day. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your grace. Uh, I ask God that you would use this class time to just, again, see how amazing and beautiful and good you are. And that, Father, you're the evidence for the existence of God and your truths revealed in the scriptures, especially the gospels as we talk about them today. Are, are just so compelling, and I pray, Father, that you would just continue to minister to us the very life of Jesus, and that our eyes would always be focused on him in the name of Jesus. All right, excuse me one second. Hey, so guys, listen, um, how many of you did the homework? Raise your hand. Okay, you did all the reading? I'm seeing some hands not raised. Oh, okay, all right. And... You guys know that we do not have class next week, right? Okay, very good. Now, I need you to get a piece of paper out. How many of you pull a, come on, pull a piece of paper out. Pull a piece of paper out. Fast, 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 fast. That works. Everybody, piece of paper out. Because that piece of paper is already out to take notes on anyway, so my question is really not needed, or my request is not needed, right? Okay? Piece of paper? I, you need to have a piece of paper. Okay? Piece of paper? Uh, somehow she needs to get a piece of paper. Here's what I want you to do. That works. Here's what I want you to do. I need you. I'm going to give you two minutes to do this. I need you to write down. Don't look on anyone's piece of paper. I need you to write down what you saw me just do. All of you. What? <laughs> okay. Right after I prayed, I did something. Several things, actually. I need you to write them down. And I need you to be detailed. You have two minutes to do this. That doesn't work, sorry. Try again. Two minutes. Just two? Yep, just two minutes. Bullet points, just bullet points. Boom, 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 because we're going to share them in class. Bullet points. Write down as many things as you can remember you saw me do. <clears throat> I would even go so far as to ask you how I was dressed, but that's going to be a pretty, pretty big giveaway. You were an eyewitness of several okay. events that I just happened. One minute. Okay, pencils down. What did you observe me do? Raise your hand and just let, list one of your bullet points off. So everybody should, right now should be raising their hand to tell me at least something that they wrote down. What did you write down? One thing. Okay, interesting. You saw me open the door. Yes. Question. No questions. Only only statements. Statement. You were eyewitnesses. That's what this class is about. Eyewitnesses. Go ahead. I didn't write this, but uh, uh, I, I saw you go that way and then come back here. Okay, so you go, saw me go that way. Not sure maybe if I went just back as far as Samuel did or not, but you saw me go back. About somewhere near the door. Near the door, okay, and then back. All right, fair enough, go ahead. I didn't write it, though. I, I went know. to the cry room, okay. What else? Uh, you went to the 
went near to the cry room, closed the door, and then he grabbed a trash can and brought it over here. Interesting. Okay. That is interesting. Good. I was giving Marielle a piece of paper and a pen, so I wasn't really paying attention. Okay, so that's not helpful being an eyewitness. It was all done by my hearing. Okay, all right. So what did you hear? I heard you walk I heard over. Your bright yellow I heard the door. So I didn't say anything. Oh, no, no, no. What did I say? Excuse me. You walked back, shut the door. Did you call for somebody? Hmm. I think you called for Rosanna. Interesting. Do, do some of you see how, how sometimes eyewitnesses don't always get information? Not to ma'am, not to right, put you down. All right, but this is interesting, Laura. When you go were ahead. in the back of the room, you asked who did their homework. Okay, actually, good. I wrote that too. Yeah. I wrote that. All right. Okay. And I did that because I needed to turn around to actually see who was looking back there. Because sometimes eyewitnesses see only a little bit of a crime scene. But they can be influenced. Just like right now, you're being influenced by things that are being shared. So for this reason, I can have you only share what you wrote down. You remember reading that in the book? Because generally, the last eyewitness, if they overhear any information, will tend to respond to that in a way that we're going to talk about later, okay? Hosanna. I literally said everything that I wrote down. Okay, so you have nothing more? Yes. Okay. You ordered the books on the table. like you. Were okay, good. I ordered the books on the table. Good. Okay, anybody else? Uh, more info. Information. Uh, I didn't D- do you have it written, written down? Yeah, that's the thing. I didn't write down because I, cause I okay. thought it was right, uh, right before you told us to, and so I just... Okay, I just can't have you share anything that you didn't write down. Okay, okay. Because that will mean you may be even you may be in. That I, wait, but but uh, uh, right when you told us to stop, I just remembered that, and so that's okay. why I said it with it. Uh, All right, so I'll take your word for it. What did you? What else? Uh, told us to get our pieces of paper. This was after he prayed. I spelled paper wrong. Okay, so I did tell you to get a piece. All right, Laura. You walked up to the front and you bent at the waist and you either picked up or put down something. I couldn't see what you were doing. Okay. All right. Anybody else? You close. You did something with the sound booth door. Okay. Anybody else? All right. Interesting. How many of you actually turned your head and looked back there the entire time I went back there? Okay, all right. So so you're eyewitnesses of only some of what happened. How many of you saw me reach into the sound booth and grab something to drink? Interesting, because I was going to actually... You did not. Because I was actually going to ask you what color this liquid was. Okay. And so when I walked back there, I didn't open and close the door. I closed the door. Nope, it was tea. So it was a totally different color, and you've already confessed you didn't see me once I passed you. Somebody's not a reliable eyewitness. Mm. Okay. Um, I actually asked you to pull out your pieces of paper when I was about right there on my way up to the front. Um, I actually did not bring this wastebasket up here. It was already here. Okay. All right. Um, how many of you saw me put my wife's keys in her purse? No. Oh, you didn't write it down, though. I didn't write it down because I was distracted by Jose. So you didn't see it, or you didn't write it down? I saw it, but now that you mention it, I remember Okay. All right, all right. See, being an eyewitness is difficult because you're going to forget some things, and you actually may misremember. And I'm kind of wondering, why did you think I brought the trash can up here? Because I heard you at the booth. Okay, you heard me. So you assumed, this trash can's usually not here, so you assumed I brought it up. And you probably didn't remember seeing it there when you sat down. Okay. So that's that's not to berate you or anything, but this is how eyewitnesses work. You know, something's different here, and I think... Now, he made an assumption, and eyewitnesses will do that. Go back to your story in the book. Uh, actually, I want you to go to page... Ah, I thought I wrote it down. Never mind. Uh, yeah, go to page... 
78. At least in most people's books, I should qualify that, huh? Now, the example that's given in the book, two different eyewitnesses with seemingly contradictory, and some points they truly are contradictory, uh, accounts. Where were, where were they stationed in this crime? You remember the crime? Okay, it happened at a with a cashier. Someone was talking to the cashier. Um, actually, they were doing a transaction with the cashier. Where were the two eyewitnesses? Uh, yes? Behind, behind him? And in front of, but there was somebody like in front of them. Mm, one was behind not the counter with the cashier. One yes. Was behind the criminal. Exactly. So one saw the front of the criminal, the other saw the back of the criminal. Talk to me about the gun. What? How did the eyewitnesses describe the gun? Uh, one of them didn't have a gun. One of them said he didn't have a gun. And one of them described the gun in almost perfect. Okay. Now, why did the person say that they, they did not have a gun when the person actually did have a gun? Hello? It might be because she was behind him and didn't see it and by the time he turned around he, he probably put it back in his pocket. Okay, very good. So she assumed, like it was assumed that I brought this wastebasket up here. Because you're trying to fill in blanks in your mind and did not have a gun. Okay. Um, how about the age of the criminal? A little bit of a discrepancy there if I remember. Yes. Yeah. One, in his, one said in his teens, the other in his mid-twenties. Why the discrepancy? Okay, fair enough. What else? It's not that good at guessing age. There we go. There we go. That's just the bottom line. Okay. Um, one of them said that he had a scowl on his face. The other said he talked very politely. How, how, how did that? How did that get so different? Okay. <laughs> All right, Hosanna. Okay, but one actually said a scowl on his face. But yeah, go ahead. The female was behind him, and the, like uh, if I were in a store and I were behind someone, the first thing I imagine is not that they're going to be talking in any voice. So I just would naturally think of. But the guy was on the other side; he saw his face, so okay. he also connected it to his voice. Very good. And I can trust me; he may have started off talking politely to try and. Get it so that the, the cashier would not be in a state of fright, but he probably pulled the gun out and then went like this. You know, who knows? But now uh, he. Okay. So uh, one said he had a vehicle, the other said he did not. How is that different? Okay. Where he parked? Go ahead. Hello. Actually, I didn't exactly understand it that much, but uh, it has something to do with the uh, the, uh, uh, the way uh, uh, one of them saw the car in a certain angle. Uh, okay, it wasn't the angle that the car was at. Yeah. It was the way that the guy parked. He um, parked in a way where the woman couldn't see it, but right. the guy could see it through the other window. Okay, and he saw him walk all the way to the car. The woman did not. So it was out of her view. So she assumed that he had no getaway car. All right. I, I wanted you guys to understand the nature of eyewitnesses. And most people, when they come to the Gospels and they see what appears to be contradictions, they make an assumption that's not a fair assumption. Now, you will probably at least once, if not many times in your life, talk with someone and they will say, well, I think the Bible is full of contradictions. Do them a favor. Ask for one. Most people who say there are contradictions in the Bible can't give you a contradiction. It's, they're saying it because that's what they've heard probably from their parents, who've heard it from their parents or a friend at work or school 20 years ago, and they can't produce a contradiction. 
But we are going to look at some apparent contradictions today. So, Saxon, I'm going to have you pass this out. Remember to give Miss Laura one. We're going to look at the resurrection accounts and look at this. They are eyewitness accounts to a degree. Now, here's why I say to a degree, because Mark was, was probably an eyewitness of some of the things that he wrote down, but most definitely not all of them. So where, can you throw that away for her? So where did Mark get all this information? Did he get it off the street? I don't need one. Thank you, though. Where did Mark get his information? Here. Here we go. Very good. Okay, he got it from Peter. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that, but Mark and Peter, and this is well known, were traveling companions, Mark serving Peter as an apostle. And we have two reliable witnesses, if you will, that said uh, Papias being one around 140 AD and Irenaeus around 185 AD, both of them, and Eusebius, that's more like 325, he's just writing church history. But these two guys in the early church said that it had been uh, very accurately, information had been very accurately transferred to them that Mark was the helper, if you will, of uh, Peter and wrote these things down, though not ne- wrote these accounts down from Peter's preaching, though not necessarily in their historic or correct order. So, from the very beginning of the church, we already know that Mark's gospel is not in chronological order, which would be totally fine for us to assume that maybe none of the gospels are in correct order. Though Luke tells us that he wrote an orderly account, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a historically orderly account. It just, that Greek word for orderly is detailed, um, accurate, not shooting from the hip, a guess. It's orderly in that sense. It's also theologically orderly. And by that, I mean every single gospel writer, their, their first objective is not to tell us the order of the events. The reason why they have the events in that order is driven by two things. Number one, for the most part, chronology. But what's even more important to that is that they are recording uh, religious teachings of Jesus. So they're theological. So there's a theme. And that's what you notice. There's a theme that each of them are weaving. And that's why one event follows the other. The word then in the Greek doesn't necessarily, because there's several words for then and now, they do not necessarily mean sequentially or one immediately following the other. Okay, But we bring these assumptions and we weigh the eyewitnesses of the New Testament, the gospel writers, in view of how we, who are not lawyers, would weigh eyewitnesses. Are they credible? Well, if they contradict one another, then they're not credible, and let's throw them out. Wait a second. Actually, here's something that lawyers know very well, and detectives as well, that if you ever have two eyewitnesses telling the same exact story, something is wrong. Not something is right, but something is wrong. What's probably wrong? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Or they just shared their story with one another. All right. So if two people are in cahoots, then they're going to try and get their story right. And here, now I don't know if you've ever seen detective stories or not, but one of the cues that they were in cahoots, they actually used the same words to describe certain elements of the, the crime, what they saw. So if that ever happens, you know something's definitely wrong here. Okay. Now, that would be circumstantial evidence, though. You need to keep building the case. So, um, people will see, 
skeptics will say, we're going to discount the Gospels because there's, they, they, they talk about things very differently. And so because they're so different, they can't be right. So along comes a lawyer or a detective, like our guy here, and says, actually, guys, that's not right. Because they differ on some points, that actually helps substantiate them. And so they say, well, then they play the other side of the fence. Because they're so similar, we're going to discount them. Now, along comes this guy, Simon Greenleaf, uh, Professor Royale of Harvard Law. In 1848, he writes a book, and his book... Simon Greenleaf was the guy who helped propel Harvard Law to the status that it's at today. Uh, one of the guys. And Simon Greenleaf wrote a book about the Gospels. To my knowledge, he was an Episcopalian. He's already a Christian, but he wants to apply his lawyer abilities and uh, evidence-gathering skills to the Gospels. And his observations in at the end of the book are these Gospel these gospel eyewitnesses write their stories exactly as you would expect real eyewitnesses to write them. So here's what I want to do. Want to do. I want us to look at these gospels specifically. If we have more time, we'll go outside of this, but specifically the resurrection story. All right. So here is what I'm going to have you do. I need, let me just make sure I'm not, oh, before I get into this here, I wanted to touch on this. Remember that I said that the last eyewitness, if you're not careful, if they get any information, because generally you need to separate your eyewitnesses, but you can't always do that. If there's like 18 eyewitnesses, they usually keep them in a room or a couple of rooms, but if they talk, then the last eyewitness will probably share only what he thinks is pertinent. He'll leave the rest out. So, if and especially if he overhears all of the accounts, maybe he's just only the fourth one, and he actually gives that example in the book, that there were several eyewitnesses, this person had been standing off, and they didn't know this person was an eyewitness, so they didn't separate him, and he overheard what the eyewitnesses were saying. So when he sat down, he left out a bunch of information, and his only goal was to help fill in what the others didn't say. Do you remember that in the book? That is the tendency that can happen with eyewitnesses if they overhear other eyewitnesses. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. If you were to turn to the Gospel of John, that's exactly what we find. The Gospel of John has very little overlap. Let me tell you four areas. It's Maybe it's five areas of overlap and it's very it's a very small percentage of john's book but um john the overlap that john has with the other three do you by the way know what the other three gospels are called together there's a there's a word the something gospels matthew mark and luke and then there's john those first three gospels are called are you ready for this the synoptic gospels how many of you have ever heard that term before, synoptic? Synoptic? Synopsis? Okay. Um, it means one viewing or similar viewing. Now, the reason why they do this is because there is considerable overlap between these three Gospels. They were written probably within a decade or two of each other. It's very likely... And just by the way the Gospel of John is written, it's fair to say that John had read those three other three Gospels. And he was encouraged by those he was mentoring to write a Gospel himself. And so he did. That's why at the very end of John, it switches from first person singular to first person plural or third person. He, they, and now it says, we, we testify that what this man shares is true. And then John concludes and moves back to the voice that he'd written the whole gospel in. And so John has overlap with the 
Jesus' baptism, but the overlap there, he gets it from a different perspective. He mentions stuff that John says, like, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The other Gospels don't have that. He does. So even though they look at the same event, John still tells it in a different way. He shares the stuff that the other synoptic Gospels did not. Another thing, the feeding of the 5,000. There is quite a bit of overlap to get the facts. Okay, how many fish, how many loaves, how many baskets left over? But John goes on to talk about how they tried to take Jesus and make him king by force. Interesting. The other Gospels don't talk about that. Then, in the very next story, is about Jesus walking on the water. And John's is very quick, and he says something rather enigmatic that the other Gospels don't. He says, as soon as Jesus climbed into the boat, immediately they were on the other side. That's led some theologians to think that maybe as soon as Jesus climbed in the boat, boom, the other mile, half mile, however further they had to go to reach the shore, they were suddenly there. A miracle. Um, the cleansing of the temple in John 2. Some theologians think it's the same story. It's just that John chooses to put it at the beginning of his gospel and the synoptic gospels choose to put it at the end. My personal view is that there are two different cleansings. There's a little bit of overlap, but there's a lot of difference. And the main thing is that the Jews say, what do you mean you're going to destroy this temple and rebuild it? It took us 46 years to do this. Josephus tells us the temple was started around 19 to 20 BC. That would bring us up to about 28 BC. So either the Pharisees misspoke and they should have said something like, it, it's been 49 to 50 years since we started this. But 46, that's not a rounded number. So that leads me to believe that this happened truly as John has it in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it even feels that way, the way it flows with the story. Okay? Um, and then, what else? And then, of course, Passion Week. But even Passion Week, uh, John focuses on a lot of things that the gospel writers do not. The basic facts, though, of his arrest in Garden Gethsemane, his betrayal by Judas, uh, Peter denying Jesus three times, um, the trial before Pilate, and then his flogging and execution on the cross, and then the resurrection. But as we're going to read, even his resurrection account is very different, and he reports things that the other Gospels did not. So John is a good example of that witness that overhears the others, and he just fills in what they left out. That's what the Gospel of John does. All right? Uh, I want us to spend some time right now, and I want us to talk about apparent contradictions, because this is the this is the biggest thing that's going to be thrown out at you. And if you were to ask, well, give an example of an apparent contradiction, uh, maybe they do have one. I assure you uh, that not only myself, but many conservative, godly men, scholars, have looked at these contradictions and would say, these are not contradictions. There really is a good answer for those, for those apparent contradictions. And I'm just going to give you one example before we look at Jesus' resurrection account. If we were to look at Luke 18.35, and I want you to write this down. Luke 18.35, it says, as Jesus approached Jericho... Then it goes on and talk, talks about the healing of Bartimaeus, the blind man. However, Mark 10.46 says, as Jesus was leaving the city, that's where we have the encounter with Bartimaeus. Except, um, yes, and Ma Mark is the only one that gives us his name. Matthew, he agrees with Mark while they're leaving the city, but he says that there were two blind men. Is that contradictory? Luke and Mark talk about one blind man, but Matthew talks about two blind men. Let's talk about that first apparent contradiction. How do we? How, how might we resolve that? Yes, Hosanna. Um, the person who said that 
Okay? All right. Um, and one gospel writer actually gives us his name. Why do you think he would do that? And the others, the other two leave him out. Very good. Bartimaeus may very well have become a Christian, and Peter, or and or Mark, knew him. Maybe he moved to Rome to help start the church there and share his testimony about how Jesus healed him. Okay? And, and Mark, or Peter, actually knew the guy, but the others didn't. So that's why he knew his first name, Bartimaeus, which actually means son of Timothy. But So what about the, the one and two? One chooses to focus on the one, okay? And we actually see this. We're actually going to see it in the uh, Jesus account, Jesus' resurrection account. But just because one writer says there was one person there, another talks about two being there, doesn't mean that there was only one or that there was only two. Okay? There could have been three blind men. But... Matthew chooses to talk about two blind men. Luke and Mark chooses to talk about the one who spoke to Jesus personally. Okay? The other blind man probably did not. Okay? So can you see how just because one gospel writer says one blind man, the other says two, does not mean that they contradict. Because they do not say there was only one blind man. They don't say that. Okay? And when you... As a detective, when you are interviewing people, this becomes very apparent. Some people will talk about one person doing something when in actuality there were two others helping him do it. But because he had an encounter with that one person, he only records that one. He only talks about that one person when in actuality, no, there were three. Okay, so do you understand that point? This is the nature of eyewitness accounts. So, so let's go ahead and, and read through this, uh, these four different resurrection accounts. Um, I, I need four readers. Raise your hands. Four readers. One, two, three, four. Okay. Three girls here and Saxon. So Saxon, go ahead and read Matthew. Then you're going to read Mark. You're going to read Luke. And you're going to read John. Okay. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with him, who 
told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the woman, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Early on the first, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples ran to the tomb. Okay. Now, there's other things that follow in John's gospel. I just chose not to record them to keep this a little bit short. But here's the first question I want to ask you. Look at these four accounts. Now, here's what I did. I color-coded everything, all right? And the reason why I did that is there's six things that I want us to observe, six elements, questions I'm going to ask. And each of them share something slightly different and we need to focus, we need to ask the question, is this contradictory? And if it's not, how do we explain it? For example, what time, here's the first question, I have it in yellow. What time does each gospel writer say that they went to the tomb? How about Matthew? What time? Okay, at dawn. Yes. They, they will all say on the Sabbath, um, first day of the week. Excuse me, after the Sabbath, when the Sabbath was over, on the first day of the week early on the first day of the week. That's how they all... So, at dawn, okay, how about Mark? When? Early. Read further. Just after sunrise. Just after sunrise. Okay. Um, Luke? Very early in the morning. Very early in the morning. Not too helpful. It's kind of broad. And how about John? While it was still dark. Wait a second, John. The others at least say at dawn or just after sunrise. But you say while it was still dark. How, are, I mean, was John wrong? Go for it. So I'm in the wind, so I know this one. Good, um, okay. The sun comes up, but it does not brighten the whole day. Like, it's still really dark. Mm-hmm. But there's just the sun coming up at dawn as soon as the sun comes above the horizon. Okay. It's still dark. It's still dawn, but it's still... There you go. How long do you think it took the ladies to, to go to each other's house and then well, go to the temple? Houses. It could have taken them 30 minutes. It could have taken them an hour, depending on how, because like, they didn't have cars. Okay, so they walked. Now, the city's not that big. So in all fairness, I'll say 30 minutes. Okay, 30 minutes. Um. Some would say, what, 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 wait a second, what does Mark tell us? It says that when the Sabbath was over, these women bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. So they're trying to tell us that they first went to the market to buy the spices, then they went to the tomb. How do we resolve that? You might have to know a little bit about Jewish customs. When is the Sabbath over? Sunset on what day? Saturday. Saturday. After 6 o'clock on Saturday, they went and bought spices. Then early the next morning, they went to anoint Jesus' body. No confusion there with what the other gospel writers say. Do you see that? Okay. So, yeah, it takes a while for them to get to it. And so, actually, when it says, while it was still dark, let me just make sure that... uh, Uh, okay, anyway. So, the next question. Who went to the tomb? Yes, who went to the tomb, hello? Um, Mary Magdalene, and then another Mary, and then another one. Is that all? Which version Oh, no, no, wait. Um, later, Peter... Later, in one of the Gospels, uh, uh, Peter uh, uh, Peter comes after they have gone to the tomb. But in another Gospel, uh, both Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John come to the tomb. Okay. Look at Luke 24, verse 10. What is, who does Luke say went to the tomb? Saxon? It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others. And the others. 
That's plural. So that means more than just um, Salome. Okay. Understand, but also realize this, that none of the gospel writers' purpose, including Luke, whose list is the most exhaustive, none of their purpose is to tell us exactly and only who went to the tomb. They only list the main players, so to speak. Mary Magdalene is always listed first. Why, though, does John only talk about Mary Magdalene? Is he wrong? I'm sorry? He could have just talked to Mary Magdalene and got the whole story from her. Instead of, so then she would be the only person he focused on. Okay. All right. I'm going to say that's part of the answer, but also realize that after this incident, the names of the ladies were very familiar to everybody. Okay. John knew that it wasn't just Mary Magdalene. So then we would have to come back, why doesn't John list the other ladies? And there's a really good answer to this. You want to give it a shot? John was the one who was just filling in all the gaps, right? Uh, Generally speaking, yes. So basically he just did the most important person and then filled in the gaps. as. Okay. What? Hang on a second. Okay, I'm gonna, that's actually my last question. I'm gonna, we're going to come back to John's account of why just Mary Magdalene, okay? So no account gives us a full list. It's perfectly fine to say to list three ladies when actually maybe there were ten. There could have been ten. Um, the ladies that went with Jesus from Galilee. I can't remember which gospel writer records that. So that could mean a dozen of them, 15 of them. We just don't know. We only know that some of them leave names out and none of them have a complete list. Okay, where were the angels? Look at each account and tell me where the angels were located. Okay, one second. So one angel... Sitting on the rolled away stone. Okay, go ahead. Okay, and how many? Uh, one. one. And he's and he's side. viewed as a young man. Right. Okay, go ahead. Luke? Uh, Luke, there are two. Uh, okay. Six. Yep. There were two. And Luke actually goes on to tell us, and I didn't write this down, to describe them as two angels. Cleopas, on the way to Emmaus, tells Jesus, "You mean what do you, what do you mean you don't know what's been going on in Jerusalem? And in his account, he does talk about Peter running to the tomb, but he says he uses the phrase two angels, not two young men or two men. So Luke concedes that these were angels. He just initially describes them as men. Which is fine because angels, even in the Old Testament, appeared as men. All right? They look like men. So why not? With shiny clothes on. All right? Very brilliant. I mean, how many people have really brilliant white clothes? You know, nobody. So there's something particular, something weird about these two young men. It's because they were angels. Okay? Um, and how about John? Now, I didn't record that, sorry. But there were two. But they didn't appear until after Mary Magdalene, excuse me, until John and Peter left. Okay? So the first two, Matthew and Mark, there's just one. Luke and John say there were two. And the two were just, were, uh, thought, she thought that they were gardeners. So working the garden early in the morning. Uh, Mary Magdalene thought that anyway. But, All we know is that there were at least two. There could have been three guys, or four. Probably two, and Matthew and Mark only record one. Neither of them say only one. Now, here's my next question. Why does Matthew seem to tell us that when he was speaking with the women, he was sitting on the stone, 
And if you compare what each gospel writer says, the synoptic gospels, what the angels said, they line up fairly well. So you're not going to find two angels in the tomb saying something and then they come out of the tomb or vice versa and one angel sitting on the stone saying something very similar. This is a little redundant. And many have accused Matthew of being wrong. He's not. Okay, put your detective caps on. There's a really good answer for this. Look closely at Matthew's gospel and how he records it. Doesn't he say, if it says that he rolled back the stone and sat on it? Okay. So is he sitting on the stone that he rolled back? Oh, and that was when the guards were there. There you go. They are saying why, while they're walking to the, who's going to move the stone away, that when they came to the tomb, do you need to use the bathroom? Okay, hurry. When they came to the tomb, they didn't need to. Why? (laughs) Now, here's the interesting thing. How did they even find this out? None of them were there to witness it. Nobody except who? The guards. Which leads me to believe very probably one of the guards became a Christian and shared the story. You know what, Mary Magdalene? Here's what happened. Here's why you guys didn't need to roll the stone away. Blah, 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 blah. And we, we had to make up a story. Okay? The only way that Matthew would know is if one of the guards told him. Um, that's the only way they'd know that, they, that Caiaphas kept it a secret too. That's right. Okay. Well, they knew something was wrong because they didn't steal the body. But one of the guards apparently became a Christian. I mean, think about it. If an angel appeared to you and took Jesus' body away, that Jesus was probably a really special guy. Conclusion, maybe he was the son of God. Maybe he was who he said he was. You listen to Peter preaching. That guy could have become a Christian on the day of Pentecost. Now, we don't know. I'm kind of filling in a little bit here. But it's wrong for us to assume. Okay, so here they, Matthew is telling us the reason why the stone, the reason why they didn't need to roll the stone away is because an angel appeared, rolled the stone away, and sat on it. When he sat on it, the men fell as dead men. At some point, they had to get up and leave because the women got there. They weren't laying on the ground. They had already left. So the stone was rolled away by the angel sufficiently before the angels, the ladies arrived so that the guards had time to run away back into the city or maybe back to their homes wondering, what do we do now? And so when the ladies arrive, it doesn't say the angel was on top of the stone. He was just on top of the stone when the men fell as dead men on the ground. Okay? So do you see how if we're not careful, we can read way too much into this account And it does not tell us that what he said, he said it while he was sitting on the stone. Okay? There is a gap then between verses 4 and 5. So does everybody see that? Look right there. Do you all see that? He sat on the stone. The men fell down. They got up, ran away. By this time, the angel disappeared. He may have gotten down from the stone, walked into the tomb, met the other angel who was who had helped Jesus rid himself of his grave clothes. And then the ladies walked into the tomb, but he was not sitting on the stone when he spoke to the ladies. Okay? There's a gap of time between verses 4 and 5. Okay. Okay. To whom did the ladies speak after visiting the tomb? Because if we look at Mark 16, verse 8, it says they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Who did they speak to? Because the other gospel writers say they spoke to somebody. I didn't include this and I should have, but they spoke to Jesus because they they met Jesus sometime after this event. I am going to come back. But they ran, Matthew does tell us, they ran to tell the disciples because they were supposed to do that. Meet Jesus in Galilee. And Matthew even tells us that's what the disciples did. They went to Galilee and they met Jesus. 
Matthew leaves out Jesus appearing that day in the upper room and appearing to Je- and, and then Jesus appearing to them exactly one week later in that very same room. Matthew doesn't tell us that. He's only concerned about what happened in Galilee, so he leaves that information out. It's not that he didn't know about it. He was there when Jesus appeared in the upper room two times. That's just not on his radar to talk about. Okay? Some people accuse Matthew of not being, or this whoever wrote Matthew, of not really being the author because he left out some really important information. Of course he did. All the gospel writers left out some really important information. It just wasn't that important to them to write it down. That's all. Do you understand? Okay, so who did the ladies talk to? Mark says no one. What does Luke say? Look in there. What, who did, what does Luke say? God, Mark must have been wrong. Wow, she just read it. No, they went and they told the disciples. How do we piece this together, guys? Is, was Mark just, did he just share something that's, that was contradictory? Did he just forget? Laurie, want to give it a shot? It sounds like they didn't say anything to anyone until they got the room where the 11 hmm. you Now, why would you come to that conclusion? Apart from the fact that Luke says that they did speak to somebody. Just based on Mark, can you glean any uh, evidence for maybe that this time frame of them speak, not speaking to anyone was limited? They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They, they were, were afraid. afraid of the Jews, not of the There we go. Sure. Why didn't... Well, they were running back. They didn't... <gasps> that, guess what we just saw? Guess what we just saw? You'll never believe what we just saw. Jesus' tomb is empty. They didn't do that. They ran right to... The disciples who were in a locked room hidden from the Jews. So they didn't say anything. Why? Because they were afraid. Guess who else was afraid? All the apostles were afraid too. And anyone gathered with them. Okay? Maybe for different reasons. Because they were afraid the Jews were going to kill them. But these ladies were afraid. I, I can't tell anybody this. They'll crucify me too. It dawned on them. We can't say anything. We've got to go straight to the disciples. Okay, so do you see now that Mark's report here is not contradictory? It just, he, they just do it because they're afraid. By the time they get to the upper room where they're all hidden and the door's locked, probably a special coded knock or whatever. Oh, open the door. They're not afraid now. All right. Here's my last question. Why in John's account does Mary Magdalene seem to not know what happened to Jesus' body? Look at that. So she came, verse 2, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Luke tells us was in that room. And they, Luke tells us, they left. So that's where verse 2 is coming in. There's a lot that happens between verse 1 and verse 2 that Luke tells us that John doesn't. When she arrives in the upper room, Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, she said this to them. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Does she know what's happened? Does she know that Jesus has been raised from the dead? She doesn't seem to know this. But she was at the tomb. That's what the other gospel writers told us. This has been a very difficult question, but it has an extremely reasonable answer. And it's just because when we're thinking, now this is really key. This is how eyewitnesses think. This is, they will record only what they saw, and they may purposely leave out some very important information. And John leaves out some really important information. So my question is, when the ladies come back, according to Luke, they seem to know Jesus is raised from the dead. But Mary Magdalene does not. And my question is, why not? Give it a shot. Okay. Well, it says we... Okay. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Um, 
Okay, so maybe she is just saying that the angels have taken Jesus out of the tomb, but we don't know where they have put him. Okay, so that's that might work. All the ladies and even Mary Magdalene knew that he'd been raised from the dead, but it would seem a little bit difficult for her to ask that question or, or make that statement, we don't know where the angels have put him, when they were just instructed, hey, tell Jesus' disciples to meet him in Galilee, because he is not here, he has been risen. When you're risen, that means you're no longer here, you've been raised, so... I'm not sure that Mary Magdalene would have been concerned about where the angels put him, okay? Let me walk you through a very possible scenario of what happened. Mary Magdalene is leading a bunch of ladies to the tomb. She seems to be the main player here in the resurrection stories. They, she's asking, who is going to roll this stone away? They look in the distance, however many yards away, the stone's been rolled away. They start approaching it, and she immediately, before entering, realizes the cord for the governor's signature is broken, or the cords. Someone has broken into the tomb. Mary Magdalene does not even go into the tomb. She immediately runs off to tell the disciples. The other ladies go into the tomb. They then encounter two angels and are instructed what to tell the disciples, and that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene, though, she did not go into the tomb. She runs, and John seems to tell us she's by herself. She runs to tell them, and shortly after her arrival, when she's talking to Peter and John, very specifically, guys, Peter and John, you're Jesus' closest friends. This is what's happened to him. The others come in and maybe from the entrance start talking. In the meantime, Peter and John, they get up with Mary Magdalene and they're already heading out the door while the ladies are giving the rest of their announcement. And she does not know what they're saying. She is only frantic. We got to solve this problem. Peter and John, help us. Somebody stole Jesus' body. So she doesn't know that he's been raised from the dead. Peter and John run to the tomb. They look into the tomb. Jesus' body is not there. And they walk off wondering, what happened? Mary Magdalene is left crying outside the tomb. Talk about insensitive men. My goodness. <laughs> left outside of the tomb to herself while they're going back, trying to figure out, as problem-solving guys will, what's the answer to this riddle? Where is this Jesus? Is somebody stealing the blah, blah, blah? While she's weeping, the two angels ask, why are you weeping? And, you know, she explains someone's stolen her body, Jesus' body, and then she turns around and she sees Jesus, and thinking he is the gardener, you know, she has an encounter with Jesus. She is the first to see Jesus. Understand this. She then, after this encounter, starts heading back to Jerusalem. Excuse me, heading back to where the disciples are. Matthew says that after the ladies left, they went to tell Jesus' disciples. Then, suddenly, Jesus appeared before them. Actually, then suddenly happened after the ladies had talked to the disciples and were heading back to the tomb. Then, suddenly... Not while they were going to, because they didn't talk about seeing Jesus. In any of these accounts, they didn't talk about seeing Jesus. After they left the disciples, that's when they see Jesus. Mary Magdalene had already seen him. Now they witness him, and they want to, they fall down at his feet to worship him. Okay? So, um, it seems, as we begin to piece these events together, even though there's a lot involved, none of them tell us the entire story, but only their perspective. Okay? And John realizes that they've talked about all of this, but they left out some important things about Mary and when she talked with Peter and John and Peter and John running to the temple because he was part of that. that he was John. And so he went to the tomb and he saw the empty tomb. And he wants to let everybody else know, 
that he saw the empty tomb. Okay? And so I think that's a very fair rendering of what could have happened. And if it's true, then that story that I just shared with you doesn't contradict any of these stories. None of the Gospels. And when you hear that, it puts the pieces together. Wow. And you realize the Gospel writers left out some key bits of information, which eyewitnesses do. Not important to them. They have a they have a purpose, and that's just not part of their purpose. So they leave it out. Luke doesn't he need us to know that, you know what Peter and John saw or didn't see, and and who outran who and and such. But John's more concerned about that, so he talks about it. Okay. Any questions with regard to this? All right, I am past time, so I'm going to just close in prayer real quick and dismiss you. Father, thank you for the truth of the Gospels, that they really, truly are reliable, and they speak life to us. And Father, the world looks on with only uh, skepticism and unanswered questions, and I just ask you, Father, you've given us the opportunity to know the truth. God, show us how we can present the truth of Jesus' resurrection from our own testimonies and what your word says so that others may come to know you. Thank you again for the truth of the Gospels and their story of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.